Good morning, freaks. Happy Bitcoin Wednesday. It's your host, Odell, here for another Seal Dispatch, the interactive live show focused on actual Bitcoin and Freedom Tech discussion. Dispatch has no ads or sponsors. We're funded by donations from our audience. Huge shout out to everyone out there who continues to support the show and make it possible. It's extremely empowering seeing the sats flow in from you all not having to rely on sponsors, having the incentives fully aligned, just here to serve you, have great conversations with great guests. The easiest way to support the show is by going to sillodispatch.com. On the bottom of sillodispatch.com, there's a link where you can go to our geyser.fund page. You can donate through Bitcoin, on-chain, or Lightning. You can attach a message to it. You can sign in with Twitter if you want a little Twitter badge. There's a whole leaderboard there. Um, that leaderboard is combined with Podcasting 2.0 um, supporters. What is Podcasting 2.0? Podcasting 2.0 is the ability to listen to it, listen to the podcast while streaming sats to the show, streaming Bitcoin to the show. You simply install a Podcasting 2.0 app like Fountain Podcasts, Echo LN, podverse.fm, Breeze Wallet, search Seal Dispatch, press that subscribe button, choose how many sats per minute you think the show is worth, and then as you listen, it automatically streams sats directly to my node, and those will show up on geyser.fund as well. Um, that combined leaderboard is really fucking cool. We have... Um, at Uncle Thinks is now number seven on the leaderboard. He has 450,000 sats. He's contributed to the show. We have at Auburn Citadel at number 10 at 174,000 sats. We have Rider Die Freak Chad Farrow number 17 with 83,000 sats. Rider Die Freak Vake at number 18 with 75,000 sats. At God Family BTC number 19 with 73,000 sats. Pretty cool seeing people climb the leaderboard. Appreciate you all who continue to support the show. Another way of supporting the show through podcasting 2.0 is something called Boostergrams. That's a message, a comment that you can leave on the episodes and choose how many sats you want to attach to those messages. I will read out the top four boostergrams from the last show that we had with Dylan LeClaire. I know freaks, by the way, that this has been a long week of dispatches and we have more lined up too. So I hope you have been enjoying them. Um, we have at cryo sats with 20,000 sats saying stay humble stacks as stack sats, stay wise boost sats. Thank you freak. We have at Ape Mithrander with 7,777 sats saying, Dylan, clearly getting lost in your eyes a few times during that. <laughs> we have at John Bayo with 6,000 sats. Acquire Satoshis is the tuxedo Winnie the Pooh version of stack sats. And then we, had, we have at Sean Dunn with 200, at Sean Dunn 206 with 3,333 sats. And he has the cool smiley face, the sunglasses. On. Thank you, freaks, for supporting the show. That rip with Dylan was fun. I've, it's funny taking financial advice from someone who was born after September 11th, but that's another topic. Um, 
guys, I know it's a bear market. I know it's a recession. If you can't support the show with sats, uh, with Bitcoin, another great way of supporting the show is just subscribing on your favorite platform. It's available on Twitch, Twitter, Rumble, YouTube, Bitcoin TV, every podcast app. Uh, you just search Citadel Dispatch and you can subscribe, leave a review, share with friends and family. It really does help. And then last but not least, this is a live, unedited show with audience participation. That's what makes it unique. I like to think that I'm not the only host, that we're all hosts together. Uh, you can join the live chat by going on Twitch or YouTube or our Matrix chats. And all links for all of these things are at SillaDispatch.com. So thank you all. Um, nailed that intro considering it's the morning and I'm a little bit hungover. So thank you for for sticking with me through that. With, with all this said, I have a great group here, great group of guys, true friends. We enjoyed BitDevs yesterday together at Bitcoin Park. Um, we have Vivek here, return guest, multiple time return guest. How's it going, Vivek? It's going well, Matt. Great to be back. Welcome to the studio. It's fantastic, as well as the Bitcoin Park. <laughs> First time, right? Yeah, it's magnificent. And we have ride or die freak and good friend, first time on the show, Rob Hamilton. How's it going, Rob? I'm doing well, Matt. How are you? How long have we known each other for? <sighs> At least four years, like like through Twitter, like yeah, through like random one, stuff. We're, yeah, we're internet friends. Yeah, but then we met in person at Bitcoin 2019 or 2020. 2021. Uh, 2021. Yeah, this is the first time we met in person. Actually, met in person. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Bitcoin 2020 didn't exist. You and I, pro that's right, it got canceled. You and I probably were in the same room because I got into Bitcoin at BitDevs New in York. New York. Yeah, I was a New York BitDevs guy and I started going in 2013. And through 2013 through like 2016 is when I was there all the time. And then I kind of dropped off. Life got busy. So That'll always be the best BitDevs. If the OG New York BitDevs. It's what got with me. Jay running it. Yeah, it's an amazing, it's a true unique experience. And yeah. It's, it was a magical time. One of my big wins was we got Jay down here to uh, give a bit devs talk uh, in September. And I was like, I was like, nobody understands the significance of this. Like, I was like, you think you'd be excited if like Michael Saylor comes in? Like, this is this is 10x that <laughs> 100x that. This is nerd Saylor. Yeah. What a great fucking dude. Um, first time at the park. You guys enjoying yourself? Uh, yeah, it's an incredible space. Like you have a multi-building compound here with a courtyard. We, we prefer the term comp campus. Campus. Okay. I got lost on campus several times, Matt. That's a good sign. Yeah, the campus is great. I have to keep exploring. Great coffee shop. You have the you know the great open space where we did bit devs last night. There's separate spaces for like larger event planning. There's so many nooks and crannies for like um either taking a call or doing a podcast. This podcast studio is fucking ridiculous. Yeah, we're in a podcast studio and there's a producer window on the side. Like this With is like no producer, by the way, because this is dispatch, so I just do it all myself. Where are you, Car? <laughs> <laughs> need to get Car to move to... Uh, Nashville. Nashville. <laughs> Working on it. Yeah. That'd be a big win. But anyway, uh, boys, we're talking about um, Miniscript today. Uh, Rob particularly is obsessed with Miniscript pretty much every morning over the last, like, two months i just feel like he's just texting me with some other mini script thing that he's wants to talk about it's guilty um so i decided that instead of having that conversation every morning it would be better if <laughs> you came on dispatch and we could all have the conversation together and then you can listen to it at 2x uh, instead of replying back to the text all the time so what is mini script why should we care yeah uh I, i'd even take a step back before we talk about mini script what is bitcoin script so satoshi when he invented bitcoin he 
also invented his own programming language, which is Bitcoin script. And it's uh, best described if you're a programmer as a reverse Polish fourth-like language, which is something from like decades old. So you'd be like, you know, 60 plus years old if you actually use this stuff in production somewhere. Uh, but it's a stack that you would use like in a lot of computer um, science concepts where you push things in, it's first in, uh, first out. Uh, and it's how you actually encode a Bitcoin address to be able to spend it. So most people know uh, a single SIG is a pay to public key hash. You have the public key, you have a hash, that's your basic single SIG. And then you have multi-SIGs, right? Which is using opcheck multi-SIG where you actually push, for two of three, you push the number two, you push three public keys, and then you push opcheck multi-SIG. And those are kind of like, that would encompass most of Bitcoin use today, single SIG, multi-SIG. There's a wide swath. There's actually 256 opcodes that exist in Bitcoin. And a lot of them are legacy deprecated ones. Some of them, if they get executed, they fail. Some of them, if they're even in the script, it'll actually just kill the program. So Bitcoin script is something that's been around since Bitcoin's inception. And given the nature of Bitcoin, you have to always be backwards compatible. So there's a lot of like landmines and things people just don't bother touching because it's too complicated to try and worry about edge cases. And what Miniscript does ultimately is it smooths out those rough edges so you can have much more robust Bitcoin smart contracts on chain. And it doesn't require a soft fork because we're already using the tools that are in the protocol as is. And it that soft fork part is really important. No fork required. Yeah. And, and it makes it more uh, intuitive from like a spending condition. It makes it more intuitive from a spending condition policy perspective versus more of like a, a programming language that uh, is only fit for the best of best devs who still encounter those foot guns. Yeah. And, and to emphasize Vic's point, uh, what Miniscript does is it makes more complicated Bitcoin scripts very accessible for someone who's not very technical to visualize and read and understand what's happening on the other side. So you don't have to be a wizard at Rust or C++ to actually use these more complicated scripts. And uh, just actually before we go deeper into Miniscript, some fun uh, Bitcoin factoid trivia for some of these old opcodes that are floating around. There used to be op version. That would actually push whatever current version of the Bitcoin client you were using onto the stack for a transaction, which just guaranteed that you would have a hard fork. Because if I'm running version one and Vic's running version two, him and I can't get consensus on what's actually going on. So a lot of opcodes are just sitting there and they're just dead. Like, and they you cannot touch them. Additionally, there used to be multiplication and division. Those got forked out back in like 2011. And those are, uh, if you touch those opcodes, it will actually fail the script, even if it's not part of the active like path that you're calling. So there's a lot of like uh, roadblocks and things that are put in there. So in, in total practice, though, you have um, those 256 opcodes and like 50 of them have actual like day-to-day -day value that you would maybe find a use for. Explain to the freaks what an opcode is. Yeah. So an opcode is basically an instruction uh, that allows you to do certain actions. A very simple one we already mentioned was opcheck multisig. So it takes in a certain number of required signatures and it reads in the public keys and then evaluates the signatures and says, okay, like, have you satisfied this multi-sig threshold condition? Uh, another very simple one would be um, op if, if something happens, you know, you execute some code, otherwise you execute some other code, just like in very simple, like computer programming. Uh, other op codes are things like hash locks that's used in lightning where you, uh, have to reveal a pre-image and this is kind of how the justice transactions work as well if someone cheats you you actually can provably 
you know, revoke that money. That's another op code. And there's a lot of other ones. Uh, but the, the very simple just nature of it, though, is that uh, there's around 50 that actually have day-to-day -day value and use, op if, else. Um, there's certain ones that uh, do the hash images I mentioned and checking signatures are kind of like the basic building blocks of what most people use on a day-to-day -day basis. And for like the average user, they're never actually... They're uh, never touching this. They're, right. The wallet's handling it. The wallet does all of this under the hood. And uh, what you could say so far is that for single SIG and like uh, object multi-SIG, like, like I call legacy multi-SIG, that's very just very, you have two of three or three of five. The wallet, it's very standardized. And because of that, uh, it just kind of dissolves into the background. The user never has to think twice about this. And what Miniscript does is it takes this whole basket of 256 opcodes and says, okay, if we're going to take 20 of these opcodes and we're going to kind of uh, create a logic around them like Lego bricks so they can click into and interface with each other. And if you keep it very simple with those primitives, you actually can get really um, involved in nuanced smart contracts. So you basically have three main checks. You have signatures, which we all know and love. We use in Bitcoin today. You have hash locks, where if I reveal a pre-image, I can actually show a hash of something. And if I can satisfy that condition, I pass the check. Uh, and then the final one is a time lock. And the time locks can be either uh, block height based or epoch like wall time based. Uh, one of the things though, Miniscript checks for this and just in general to know if you combine a block height and a wall time lock in the same thing, if I say block height a million and after January 5th, uh, 2050, it will fail. You have to pick one or the other within a single Bitcoin script. And so these are one of like the foot gun things that Miniscript checks for when you're trying to populate a new thing is that you have to pick one or the other. You can't use both. If it's greater than 5 million, I believe it's block high, right? And then if it's under 5 million, it's uh, timestamp. Yeah, so this is one of the interesting quirks is that um, the the time lock opcodes, op, uh, check uh, lock time, op CLTV, op check lock time verify, and op CSE, op sequence verify, uh, actually change behavior based on if it's four bytes or five bytes of code. So if it's a four byte, it treats it as a number. Uh, like a block height. And if it's five bytes, it actually treats it as um, wall time. And th this is like very deep in the weeds of that. But what I'm trying to communicate is that there's all these weird little quirks in how Bitcoin script works. And what Miniscript does is it dissolves all of those foot guns away. So you can just focus on writing more complicated and involved Bitcoin smart contracts on the base chain in a way that's verifiable and you can feel safe and secure interfacing with it. So you don't have to worry about this stuff. Just like today, you don't worry about opcheck multi-sig for your multi-sig. It just works. Miniscript enables that it just works uh, template playing field. So you can do uh, whatever customization you want within the rules. Awesome. I mean, before we dive in deeper, because I assume... There's a bunch of freaks out there that are very confused right now. Sure. Um, in practice, what does this enable for users? Uh, yeah. Uh, I think think uh, a very simple, straightforward example would be a decaying multi-sig, right? So let's say you have a five of five multi-sig. Where you need every key to sign a transaction. That's right. All so five keys. All five keys have to sign. And you can have it so that over either by block height or by like time passing by year or every 100,000 blocks, you can do some math and take a look and say, you know what, if the money doesn't move, I'm actually going to change it to be a four or five multi-sig. And if it doesn't move for another year, you can make it a three or five multi-sig, right? So this- Just in case one key is lost, two keys are lost. That's exactly right, right? So you, you, you can start mapping out contingencies in different ways you can spend your money, right? And that 
empowers the user to be able to have more flexibility because when you put money into a Bitcoin address, you're locked to the rules that you set up at that time. And this is why it's called like pay to witness script hash. Like a that's a SegWit script hash. So you take this whole complicated Bitcoin script and you hash it and you encode it into a Bitcoin address. With meaning when you put the money in, you can't change the rules after the fact. So if you can extend the flexibility and kind of the edge cases and how you can interact with your money, it empowers you as an individual to have more control. Um, for corporate governance situations, it allows you to have more contingencies to make things that are much, much lower likelihoods of loss events. And that's why I think is like the, the, the thing to start thinking about of changing the idea of what it is to have uh, Bitcoin you know, in an address, like you can change custody models to be much more robust to your own individual needs. And then we have a comment from Zoop in the Matrix chat, um, which, by the way, freaks, you can find by going to CitadelDispatch.com and clicking that Citadel chat button. Um, he's asking a question based on inheritance planning, which was my is my favorite example of it. Yes. Is this idea where you can have an heir, um, you can have your, your son, his key doesn't activate until a certain number of blocks have passed. Mm -hmm. So you can make him wait 20 years and then he, his key will work. But until then, he can't spend shit. Yeah, you could do something like that for sure, where you can have an heir uh, based on a time lock be able to access money in the far distant future. Uh, but in the short term, you could still spend it. If exactly. You move it. Right. You'd still be able to move it. And if you set it up as a relative time lock, each time you move the money, you would reset the timer Ooh, for the 20 great. years. Yeah. Yeah, so like you basically he misbehaves and you just send the Bitcoin. <laughs> you send it to yourself. Now you're waiting another yeah. 20 years, buddy. Yeah, well, that's the interesting <laughs> thing about relative time locks. It makes a uh, dead man switch functionality on chain because because cool. you're, you're actually being able to update when the so there's two kinds of time locks. There's absolute time locks, meaning after one day or, you know, one day. Uh, that's actually like after block height a million. That's an absolute time lock. So if it's before block 1 million, you can't spend the money. If it's after, you can spend the money. Right. A relative time lock says 1,000 blocks. So I can do 1,000 blocks when money enters into that address. So that makes your own custom dead man switch you can use for any kind of scenario that you want to plan for. And additionally... Because if you're alive, you just reset. reset you do a self-send. And this is actually my personal theory on how we're going to start um, ending one sat for V-Byte. We're going to start having a bunch of people with dead man switches moving money around. It's actually going to start bringing fee market utility to, <laughs> to Bitcoin. <laughs> I still have pie on my face from saying that the, the, the mempool, mempools wouldn't clear again. So I'm just going to not say anything. But this, the, I'm, <laughs> I'm giving stay, you a chance to, sav to salvage your reputation on that. Yeah, the mempool clearing. Yeah, so relative time locks are really interesting. And especially for inheritance planning, you can create these dead man switches. And you can have this stuff like I would I want to give a shout out to the uh, Bitcoin dev kit team. Uh, if you actually go to Bitcoin dev kit, they have something called the playground and it does this visualization of the Lego bricks you can actually build into mini script code. And it's a really strong tool to start thinking around. And uh, I have oh, my... that's what this freak posted. Uh, yeah. Zoop, Zoop post DBK playground. Yeah. No. Yeah. And so um, I know this is an audio only podcast, but I'll show you after the fact. And actually, if you go to my Twitter uh I have my pinned tweet. I go through this and I have visuals of how I took a policy from the BDK playground and turned that into mini script code on chain. And I used my ledger hardware wallets to actually sign it. The whole end to end experience. So this is where uh, I think a lot of more involved custody scenarios are going to be moving towards is the mini is, is a mini script model because it just adds much more flavor and control that's customized to your needs. I, I think the process of you discovering Miniscript is also really cool. How I wanted to touch on that yeah. because uh, 
you know, you came to me, I want to say around like Thanksgiving and, you know, uh, you could talk about Anchor Watch for a second, why you needed to maybe potentially write custom script. Yeah. So the, the idea, so, um, in March of last year, I, I co-founded a company called Anchor Watch that's working on insurance solutions for Bitcoin. And when you're starting to deal with large, um, large amounts of like corporate money, uh, you want to have a lot more contingency planning. And if you actually can mitigate risk, it actually translates to more affordable premiums, right? So I came to you, Vic, saying like, I've messed around with a little bit of programming in Bitcoin script. I've definitely locked coins on testnet, not understanding what I was doing. But like, what would be my best path to starting to go down you know, doing these more robust like uh, contracts on chain? And you said, don't reinvent the wheel, just check out many script. And so I took that basically Thanksgiving week uh, started going through all of the written material that was there, all of the interviews and podcasts that had discussed it previously. I actually really strongly recommend a huge shout out to Andrew Polstra. If you go to uh, YouTube and type in Andrew Polstra, London BitDevs, he does a two hour and 10 minute talk. The first 45 minutes is just like this cathartic scream about how annoying Bitcoin script is and all these <laughs> foot guns. And then after that, he spends the next like hour and 15 minutes just talking about all of the opportunities with Miniscript. And I started really quickly seeing like, okay, this is not, uh, th this is this is so far like, you know, hitting all of the things I'm looking for. Is it live code that functions though? It didn't require soft work, which was a huge win. And then looking at the Bitcoin dev kit, like team, they have a lot of these like libraries out of the box that does the comp compilation, which we haven't talked about policy versus output descriptors. We can jump into that. Uh, but it starts white living all these pieces and you can start using this to make this all work today in production. So it's it's not something that's very abstract. And that's what like Andrew started this, I think, in 2017, end of 2017 or early 2018. Or was it 2018? 2018. I Into remember 2018. like okay. Sankit being like introduced uh, on like a what Bitcoin did podcast while Peter was talking to Peter Wella. I like snuck oh, yeah. in there and that's when like they originally mentioned it or something. But mm -hmm. I, I think it's really cool because. Uh, like you said, no soft work required. Anyone, literally me or you, can go play at uh, BDK Playground. I think they have Elephant now. And it was formerly even earlier work from Alicos and Steve Myers. Uh, Alicos had something called Magical Bitcoin Wallet, which was really good. You could think of it like for the audience. It's like a MIT scratch sort of thing. You don't have any programming experience. It's just like drag and drop if this, then that, like three blocks. It's very simple. Keep it stupid, simple. But yeah, it, it was really, it, it just expanded because we can create whatever our policy is, whatever we want to have the conditions for spending from that key. And then after that, it'll then turn whatever based on those conditions into script. And that script can then be used in our transactions. So it's a game changer. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is, uh, all of what you said is right. And I like I, I think what's going to be really happening over the next like year or two is kind of a I saw someone describe it online, uh, like a Cambrian explosion of like Bitcoin use cases that people hadn't really tried to approach before, because this just extends the this extends the functionality of layer one Bitcoin in a way that I think is very synergistic with layers two and beyond, because we're extending the programmability and utility of layer one. You're going to be able to start anchoring these things into other use cases that people are working on. And it just gives us much more granular control. And I think it's just a really powerful programming primitive. Uh, and 
and I guess it's been out for a while, but it yeah. has been used by uh, people like, for example, Blockstream, uh, the brilliant engineers that wrote Miniscript itself uh, tried to figure out how to do the Liquid Federation multisig using Miniscript versus what they did in hand. They actually ended up saving uh, on the transaction size, therefore fees. I think it's been used in Bolt 3 and HTLC stuff, uh, I believe from Connor previously at Lightning Labs. Yeah, so they didn't actually, I think, did they fully push it to prod? I just know that the Miniscript compiler, the way it works, and let's just take a step back for a moment and talk about what is a policy versus like the output descriptor Miniscript. So a policy is kind of what we're talking about, this plain English language formation of uh, the certain spending rules you're trying to do, and or this key, this hash, this time lock, and uh, all of that stuff is written in very plain English. And from there, there's a compiler that will actually turn it into a Miniscript output descriptor. And so for output descriptors, it's kind of the new format that everyone's using for addresses that encode single sig addresses, multi-sig addresses, including um, Miniscript output descriptors. And uh, it uh, allows you to, uh, in very much in plain English, start optimizing all of these different branches. So a very in interesting thing is if you're having different conditions, like an or branch, like I can spend either the coins uh, A or B, you need to understand the probabilities that each outcome is going to happen. And because you want to understand the one that's going to most likely happen most often, you probably want to put that one first because uh, you know you you have to push all of this data uh, when you're actually doing a transaction. So you can start optimizing the whole overall transaction size based on what outcome is more likely to happen than not. And uh, I think I was I was rewatching uh, Polster's talk on this. He said that like, they save seven bytes for lightning HTLCs if they use the Miniscript compiler because it just does all of the rules in a much more concise way. And this is where I think like, and, and Liquid too, like yeah. saves like a byte. Like there's a lot of things and people who put a, like hundreds of man hours into trying to optimize this stuff and the compiler just automatically is able to do it more efficiently because it's taking very simple rules and just rolling them up into, you know, the optimization. And it could actually help on the other side of the range too, where uh, sometimes your transaction might be too big and be non-standard, therefore it wouldn't be relayed, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, this and Matt, like, let us know if you have questions you want to jump in. Like, this this starts bringing into other things because, like, transaction malleability is a thing. Uh, it, it never went away, right? So, as a recap, uh, in 2017, uh, one of the big trade offs, well, one of the big uh, opportunities with enabling SegWit is we ended transaction malleability. So, what could happen is, is that a miner could add data, arbitrary data to a Bitcoin transaction and it would change the transaction ID. And when you did that, it broke some wallets and it's a part of the reason why Mt. Gox claims that they lost their, they got, they got hacked the way they did because the transaction IDs changed and all that. That was bullshit though, right? Oh, that, yeah, I'm, not, I'm just saying that was <laughs> one of the things they point, pointed to saying that this is why we lost money. Uh, but uh, I would I would put it in the bullshit category. Yeah. Uh, and so what happens though is that with SegWit, you actually remove the witness data segregated witness you remove the witness data outside the transaction so now a transaction id what's broadcasted can't be changed but the witness is sitting outside the transaction unsigned and what happens now is that you actually have to manage this witness when you're using these um arbitrary length and style of bitcoin codes in a way to make sure that miners can't malleate and actually influence uh unintended spend paths and the most straightforward way you could think about this is let's just say at a very Let's say I, I, I made a mini script contract that had no signatures. It was time locks and hash locks. Well, the second I broadcast my transaction to get my money, 
a miner could see the pre-image to all my hashes and then they can go try and front run me and try and steal my money, right? So there's certain malleability checks and sanity checks that Miniscripts encourages to make sure that, you know, uh, when you're signing and you're kind of broadcasting transactions, you're doing it in a way that minimizes your attack surface area for a miner to alter stuff. Now, uh, the way it all works, though, if you're including signatures, which almost everyone is, you shouldn't have this issue with someone being able to operate that stuff. But these are just the things to start thinking about because miners can also start pushing arbitrary data into your witness to make your transaction look larger than you intended. So you can kind of get bumped out of the, the uh, you know, the mempool if your transaction if you're not paying enough sats for VBite. And like uh, Andrew Polster talks about this at that London uh, Bitcoin meetup, like you mm -hmm. said, he explains how, uh, you know, when you're pushing things onto the stack, uh, you pushing like just one zero or is it multiple zeros mm -hmm. and like the Boolean operations, whether it evaluates true or false, depending on what data you're pushing up there, there, there is still malleability. And I was completely unaware of that. Yeah. Well, so it's actually funny, uh, op bool and an op bool or. Uh, they have bool in their name, but they actually take numbers, not booleans. And that was the one thing that Sipa didn't even know until they went deep in the weeds. That like, wait a second, like this is like we're talking about uh, like data type architecture for the Bitcoin stack language, like Bitcoin script. But it's all of these like interesting little like side cases that Miniscript just buffs out all of those rough edges and makes it kind of work out of the box. Yep. There, there, there's a lot of random foot guns there that, like I said, uh, mm. or like we said, even Sipa <laughs> or Polstra, Sankit, the people who like work on Miniscript itself, uh, were unaware of. Yeah, like, they were. Everyone has their own uh, things they are not happy about. Uh, I think Andrew doesn't like. Um, what was it code separator or something? Oh, op code <laughs> separator. So that's a yeah. that's a legacy op code because they originally wanted to have functionality where I could delegate a key to someone else to do operations for my Bitcoin address, like my Bitcoin. Right. And they never actually went through with it, but they put it in the op code. And since it's in, in the stack, like it has to stay there forever for consensus. So it's just kind of sitting there with like no real functionality. And it's just like you can't like to remove it would be a fork. So it's just kind of like It'd stuck, like frozen fork. ice. It would be a soft fork. Yeah, to change that. Um, and then we we have 11 no ops and I guess the CSV and CT, CLTV are two of those 11. And that's what we kind of propose when people want new op codes. Yeah, they're budgeted kind of like in reserve, like we're not using this at the moment. And then that allows you to do soft forks, add functionality without having to actually remove any of the old op codes and cause like some sort of consensus change. Yeah. I uh, One other thing too, just from a mental model standpoint, we always talk about like, you have a three of five multi-sig, a two of three multi-sig. You actually, in Miniscript, you're th they're called thresholds, right? You can have a threshold of three conditions. Those conditions, some of them can be time locks, which is really interesting. You can have a two of three policy where it's two keys and a time lock, which is what we we're talking about before about like with a decaying multi-sig. So it could become a one of three after X amount of blocks, and it all just very neatly compacts itself in a very usable way. And it kind of actually brings it to the next point of like, signing devices, right? Hardware wallets and like their support for this. Today, there's two wallets out of the box that support this, Spectre DIY and Ledger. Um, and Ledger just pushed the test app, uh, the testnet version of this app uh, like two days ago. So you can actually go to, if you have, if you have a Ledger Nano, Nano S, Ledger Nano X, you can, uh, S Plus, you can, uh, you can go to Ledger Live, up to download this and actually start messing around with the mini script code as don't it. they have a mainnet version too they actually uh did have a mainnet version and they rolled it back 
Oh, so there's no mainnet version right now. I actually have a ledger here that he has more than one ledger there. He he yeah, has about like ten ledgers and <laughs> all different colors and everything. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple of mine I actually updated and I refuse to roll it back so I can use mainnet mini script. So I have a couple ledger ledgers at the moment that can do it on mainnet, but uh ledger had to roll back uh the version that included mini script at the moment. Do we know why? What was the issue? Or? Uh, so looking at the, did you lose all your money? I didn't lose any money. And the, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I'm actually pulling up the ledger discord. Sal, who does great work over at ledger on the Bitcoin app, basically said that there were some concerns with the ledger nano X unrelated to mini script. It was, uh, it was related to like some firmware updates and they were just being like out of an abundance of caution. This was a big rollback. update in general, right? They switched to output descriptors or it was a very big update. They removed the legacy API hooks. And uh, because of that, they were moving to output descriptors. And if you had any website that used ledger um, and you didn't catch the update, like your website broke functionality. And to be clear, it's not like you lost money. Your, your keys are still safe. It was just from a user interface standpoint, the functionality broke. Right. Yeah. You just weren't able to connect it, right? Yeah, you wouldn't be able to connect it. Like you still had all of your keys and everything, but you would have to use a website that had updated code for the output descriptor format. Yeah, which kind of brings it into the output descriptors tie in really nicely. So um, Spectre DIY supports uh, Miniscript and Ledger does today. And Ledger, actually the team at Ledger sound crew have a proposed BIP for how to, what they call register wallets, because you have these very complicated and kind of unrestricted in the sense that like there isn't one way to do a certain mini script vault, uh, a way of actually authenticating on a hardware wallet, how, uh, <laughs> uh, how we have a surprise, uh, surprise window guest. appearance. He's <laughs> jumping outside of our window right now. He heard us being mini script. He, he said he's going to add mini script tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to come flying through the window. Why yeah. doesn't cold card have mini script yet? Um, so that's a good question. Uh, having talked to NVK, it's something that uh, they, it's it, it involves a lot of code changes and how they use mi multi-sig today. Yeah. I think oh, they, no. they take like a market approach to things. So like he wants to validate that there is demand for that probably before adding it. And, uh, I think the man has just entered the building. <laughs> yeah, I think he heard us say the word mini script so gold card. We need a balance to the shilling, right? Wait, am I on the splits or not? Come here. Yeah, here get over go. here. Come sit down. <laughs> we got Rodolfo in the studio. Hello. Yeah, make sure you hold it close to your mouth. Yeah, yeah. No, we're not no. picking you up. No. So we were just going through Bitcoin script, mini script. We were just starting to talk about signing devices and hardware wallets that support it. And uh, we were just talking about how um, Spectre DIY and Ledger are the two that are supporting it today. And Ledger has a BIP proposed on how you interface with it. And then uh, the question came up, Matt asked, why isn't this on the cold card? And then you started jumping outside the window. So I think you have yeah, the I room bug. adding it tomorrow. Yeah, that, that's, you're... Good, uh, that's good timing. I just no, brought actually, I, barbecue. I asked the question after I saw your face <laughs> jumping up and down. <laughs> uh, let's focus on the barbecue. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, like, you know, it's there's a lot of things that everybody wants on wallets. For example, uh, BIP149, BSMS, to set up uh, quorums for multisig. Um, I'm informing my need for mini scripts from, um, uh, from output descriptors, 
and the adoption is, is abysmal. So, you know, <laughs> if people can't adopt at least uh, output descriptors, I think mini scripts are going to happen. It's fantastic tack, but it might just take a while. That's fair. I just want to let you know the BIP you wrote is BIP 129, not BIP 149. There so you. I'm just. And, and Citadel Rob, Dispatch does live fact checking. There you right. go. Don't trust Potato. Potato. Rob, we, we kick the, the ball back to you. I guess it's on you to get a mini script adoption via Anchor Watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. You know, make a PR. I, I can make a PR. <laughs> the classic. I. I, I <laughs> I, I may start just jumping in into MicroPython and updating the code, but that's a that's a very daunting task. Uh, but I, I will say, there, like, there are user experience things that need to be considered, right? If you're if you're taking arbitrary, arbitrarily complex and involved um, code, there isn't like a standard template like there is for multi-sig or uh, legacy single-sig. Uh, they like you want to make sure that users understand with full knowledge and consent when they're putting money in and when they're taking money out that they're not getting like attacked or anyone's messing with their stuff. Like in a perfect example, this is for multi-sig, someone can try and swap your change addresses, right? And the cold card has great tooling on making sure like, hey, like I don't recognize this change address, like don't spend it. Those are all kind of pieces of tooling that need to be figured out for how this works with Miniscript because it's that same problem, but compoundingly more, you know, complex. Yeah, that's the thing. Like when you get into the complexity of Miniscripts and what people want to do with it, I think people are kind of in for a rude awakening. <laughs> you know, uh, we we barely have multi-sig done well, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and then we're about to change it all with music too. Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, I, I love the, the Taproot stuff. I love all these things. I mean, but these are, these are money losing possible changes, right? To code bases. Like, and then they have... In intense intense complexity so uh i still telling people to like use single sig passphrase uh and you know like going going from that to multi-sig and then going from multi-sig uh to schnorr to then go to complex musig <clears throat> i think we're a few years away from from that still yeah i think the different signature schemes are a slightly separate from Miniscript in the sense that Miniscript is just code that's sitting there already. Like we're not, there isn't a fork required. It's just using different opcodes in different formats. And most of the heavy lifting is actually done by the PSBT finalizer, right? What's most important is the sign, the PSBT signing function. So um, you can actually abstract a lot of like the crazy edge case, like constructing a transaction witness from PSBTs yeah, to other I software. Keep, but how do I keep code card from being vulnerable to a grifting attack? Grifting attack being someone swaps out like swaps out a change address or or sends it to a derivation path, you know that it's like uh, yeah. uh, infinite sort of lost or uh, I, I just I don't know right and and remember like uh, we are very sort of limited in memory and and like complexity on on the hardware side not with the Mark IV anymore right. Mark well, three was yeah, limited. I mean, yeah, this I could mean, be something. We wouldn't be able to even fit Schnorr. Yeah, exactly. On the Mark three, deleting <laughs> uh, spaces, right? Yeah, exactly. No, Mark four does uh, give us a little bit more room. Yeah, so the Ledger Nano S, I'm not sure how that compares to like the Mark four on. Well, they size. they have way less memory, but what they do is they 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 require a computer to do a lot of stuff. So mm -hmm. they stream the actual application back and forth. I'm not like 100 familiar how they're doing now because they changed a bunch of stuff. 
uh, I think they actually broke some multi. So sorry for the freaks, because this, this is audio only. I'm actually handing Rodolfo um, a Nano S Plus that has Miniscript Flash on it, and right now going through how they go through registering a policy and the way the way Ledger does this. This is completely ludicrous to do this. Look at this. It just it's, it's a button. button. It, so it's a lot of button clicks. So this goes no, to not just that. I mean, it's like a bunch of gibberish. Yeah. It's so it's not human legible. No. Yeah. So it, that's the output descriptor. So, I know, but like, yeah, what? I'm just explaining. Like, so the way Ledger is tackling this is it presents the output descriptor on screen and it presents all of the keys, all of the XPubs in the quorum. And then you uh, verify that you're assigning it. It takes a hash of that whole policy. And then that signature that you present is how you ever interact with that wallet ever again. So you're why checking you're having, that against why do you have what's like on the complex screen. characters here. Like, what's this is very confusing. Yeah, there so, is upside down uh, uh, question marks here. Let me look at that. The oh yeah, that's Spanish. It's not upside down question mark. It's just a small screen. You need to look a little bit closer. You see, like this is what I'm saying. Like this is completely ludicrous. It's, it's a parenthesis. It's a parenthesis. Parenthesis and a comma. Yeah. So this is. <laughs> Get it right, MBK. No, yeah, this is just exactly my point, right? Like, listen, we want the users to verify stuff, but if the stuff we're showing for them to verify is so complex that they can't actually well, verify it, they're going to have a false sense of security and send money to the infinite. So this is board. kind of the tooling that I'm working on building right now is you can take that output descriptor and it would just make a visual graph of the transaction spending condition. So you can look and see on a screen and ideally someone else would also have it written so you wouldn't be just trusting my code, but you can take different policy visualizers. How do I trust a computer doing that, right? So, because the, the idea is that the hardware, see, we were trying to, and maybe that's why it's a better place to sort of back a little bit on this, is that we were trying to have users check stuff on cold card, but it's kind of unrealistic, right, for change outputs and things like that. So we actually don't do that. We check and we say, hey, you control this change output and mm -hmm. you don't control this change output, right? Because mm -hmm. if you just show an address, they're not going to actually know if it's their change address or not. Yeah, like it's... False sense of security. Yeah, and exactly, right? I'm I, I really sort of trying to steer the market away from false sense of security because I feel like that causes people to lose more money than even bad security. Well, and then it the seems like a completely different flow, right? I feel like cold cards optimized for like the micro SD air gap uh, kind of transaction, PSBTs. The ledger people are just like literally connecting it with via USB yeah. to a laptop. But the whole part point of a hardware wallet is that you don't trust what's on the computer screen. Or yes. one of the parts of the hardware wallet is you don't trust what's on the computer screen. So you check the actual screen on the device to see that it's showing what it should be showing there. Uh, if if you're not actually verifying on the device because you can't understand what's going on, then actually you don't even you know, necessarily need to use the hardware wallet, right? Are there is a is there a software wallet that does Miniscript right now? What's it called? Leanne or something? Uh, Liana, that's the Revault team. Yeah, has Liana. Kevin. Yeah, Ke yeah, Kevin. Re Revault the company though. Yeah, Kevin. That's right. yeah, yeah, and you can download that right now and use it with Miniscript, right? Yeah, they don't have like the full menu of like picking everything you want, but it does like time locks for like inheritance, like a dead man switch. Yeah. So the the point that you're trying to make though is that the the whatever Miniscript descriptor or output descriptor is more complex than the address and like the flow they already do. Yes. Yeah, because if on an uh, so you're doing a normal single sig ledger transaction or cold card transaction. There's two things you need to verify, right? There's the receive address, the address you're actually sending it to. Yeah. Very, that's Return very simple, tag, right? Yeah. You you just look at the device and you're like, okay, that's the address I want to send to. And then the second thing is every tra most transactions have change, and that's what MVK was saying. Make sure that change is actually going back to an address yeah. co that's controlled by the key from the way, hardware wallet, right? I think uh, we are the only wallet that changes that checks change output, like that you own it. 
So like doesn't doesn't didn't Ledger after, add it after like uh, there was a, I, a I don't think they do an attack. Might be Bitbox. I think maybe Bitbox does. Uh, it's not a lot of wallets, so like we're still not even at a point where wallets are checking for that. Um, see, like I'm much more interested in this in this scenario. Uh, on say, for example, you know, you have nunchuck, right? And and then you have more complex multi-sig going on there. Mm-hmm. And then you have tap signers sort of like because they are interactive NFC mm-hmm. doing some of that work. But then because it's multi-sig, you don't care as much about verifying the mini script on the screen of the device. Yeah, I mean, I just looked at the ledger. That's pretty unreadable. Yeah, it's pretty much unreadable. It's, it's I mean, hopeless. It's, like, it's no absolutely hopeless. Hoddle text. Screen? Is it the Hoddle text? text or you know, or like, like characters? Or maybe, what? maybe one. Actually, fuck. I have a good idea for this. Why don't you just make the hardware wallet show a, a text QR, okay, of the information you want the person to verify, and then you have like uh, either like either just the text reader on the phone show that information in a sort of formatted way that looks decent for you to verify it. Yeah, I think it's a bit of the form factor of the small screen. You have a very yeah. constrained design space. And I think what you're getting, at, I, I would agree in that you should be able to have a computer or other place and then have it cross reference. No, no, the computer is compromised. Does the ledger stacks scenario. does the ledger so, stacks fix this? <laughs> ledger stacks. <laughs> I mean, so if you read the mini, like if you can read the code, it is in plain enough English to be able to initially parse it. I view this as very early days and building the tooling around this to make it more streamlined, to make it a better user experience is going to be kind of like one of the missions that I'm charged with and making it better. And also the larger community and just making this tooling better because I think for large institutional sums of money, like you're going to want more nuance and governance with the custody. Oh, like, custody of your money. like this is how it's going to be used. So it's going gonna, it's it's gonna to start off as a power user thing, just like multi-sig started off as a power user thing. And today is still kind of a power user thing. I, I think like the path to that enterprise customer is going to be through the check marks people. Right. So it's going to have to be like Unchain, Casa, you know, Coinbase, the people who do, because see, most uh, like proper institutions with like real amounts of money, they want the insurance, they want the CYA, like all that stuff. Right. Like, and, and like they're not going to sit in a boardroom and set up like a bunch of like devices and sort of like, okay, we're ready now. I agree. And that's why I think that like what Miniscript enables is an idea of like a multi institutional custody model. Cause why are we using like, old banking paradigms that there's one person who holds your money for you. There's there's no reason to have one single party. You should use multiple institutions, people that are checking everyone else, like that that classic scene from Reservoir Dogs where everyone's pointing guns at each other's heads. Like that's how it should work. And wrapping insurance around this too adds a compliance layer of like, oh, like if like if something were to go wrong, like, you know, you're still covered. Right. And it provides that like low friction ability to kind of put money in this kind of system. You know, if you can get output descriptors fully disseminated, I think you're going to have a better path to upgrading to Miniscript. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, it's like the low-hanging fruit. Output descriptors is, is like is like a slum dunk easy, yeah. right? And, and, and that's going to give you, uh, like, a path to have wallets also have better UI for handling that descriptor information. Yeah. Somebody's going to come up with, like, cool standards for, like, UI, yeah. per se. 
Uh, hopefully something better than words. Exactly, right? Yeah, uh, it, I think that's a good point. And I think like Ledger's pushing this forward because their new version of the Bitcoin app is only using output descriptors. So that anyone who's interfacing with Ledger is going to have to move over to output descriptors pretty quickly. So it's not going to work with like all this install base they already have. Because like I don't see Casa or Unchain moving to that anytime soon. Yeah. Well, well, so the output descriptor stuff, um, I mean, talk about it. That was, I think, that was one of the things that initially broke when they pushed the update last year, uh, December 27th. And I found it that it that it broke Casa and Unchained. Yeah. And like, I, and like they rolled it back now. So I feel more comfortable talking about it. And from a disclosure standpoint, like, no one lost money. There was, it was no just, funds. It, at no, 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 no funds were at risk. risk. No, it's I just, just, you can't use the signer. You can't use the signer. You couldn't. And that's, I, well, they had a legacy app that you could install separately. You know, right? we have yeah. a we have a a, a very very uh, intense thing internally, uh, which is uh, don't break things. Uh, it was very rare they're gonna break an integration. Um, again, complexity is often where the breaking. Well, it was happens. also because your integration is just a very simple PSBT process. But that's kind of the way it should right, be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but but again, like Moosig is gonna get weird, right? Because it's gonna have to be interactive. At least though, there was a proposal to not interact with Moosig, maybe. Well, I think that's more like the roast frost stuff. But right. Moosig too, I think you're at least looking at two rounds. Yeah. So so like you're gonna have like QRs are not gonna work uh, for interactive. It's gonna be completely insanity for you to like be taking pictures like multiple times with the screen. So like NFC, you can do it, and USB, you can do it. Uh, and uh, SD card is also going to be a pain. Well, yeah, people are going to try and do the animated QR codes, right? It's just going to be so many panels. No, it's not just that. You're going to have to do it, redo it, iterative, like, right. it's like multiple it's rounds, time with multi-screen. Like, uh, yeah, it's, it's unrealistic. Yeah, you have to do multiple rounds for all that stuff. And I think for standards too, like and the bandwidth might not be enough, right? Because right. that multi-sig might be too big, so it might be like I don't know, like ten QR screens. Yeah, like, animated QR, animated. Yeah, yeah, but ten. It, it takes longer to load. Yeah, it's just. And the one other thing too with Miniscript is it makes time locks very accessible. And I think that we're like talking about standards and how to interface with stuff, understanding like how do people, uh, you know, standardize how they use time locks. Like, do you want to have a 20 year time lock? I probably, we mentioned that earlier on the show. Like, I probably wouldn't do a 20 well, year time lock. That's for my hypothetical son. Right. He's going to have to deal with that. Right. That's his problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. But like, I, I think like annual key checks that like refresh the dead man switch of like a relative time lock makes sense because it gives you enough flexibility because 20 years is a really long time. You don't know what's going to happen in 20 years. But you could spend Bitcoin right? hasn't like, existed for 20 years. You can cancel that transaction by just spending the, the rolling the UTXOs into a new transaction too. So if you deposit money into a relative time lock, yeah, so you do a time lock, yeah. right? And then you go and say in a year, you're not like you want to switch something, right? Or you just make it a thing where like the family has to like sweep the funds into something else or at least spend one UTXO. You can keep one tiny UTXO that's the one that breaks the time lock mm -hmm. uh, and then sort of like make a new one. With Miniscript. No, it could, well, it, have he's just talking regular. Oh, right. Yeah, he's just talking plain stuff. But I think other things like doing like epoch timestamps like i think that's the like search space if you because like just like if, if you lost all of your eclug for a multi-sig if you lose your out descriptor for the mini script like you don't have access to your money even if you have the keys because it's just like you have this scripting logic of how you spend your money so that becomes a new thing you have to back up and have a copy of somewhere you have to have all of your full policy somewhere so you can recreate your transaction to match your hash of the transaction right for the pay to witness script hash stuff yeah, so these are all like different. And so like if you're all of a sudden like you have to start brute forcing epoch timestamps 
like that search space is so massive. You want to, I like, I was thinking like standardizing stuff for like, if you're going to use a wall timestamp, have it either be noon or midnight GMT. Like if you're going to do it, don't have the search space be any possible second between here and the end of time. Like, like that's an insane I proposition. So many said stories are really No, that's what I mean. But what if you want you? I mean, block height, like number of blocks, is way safer in general. No. Well, yeah, because you have a much smaller search space yeah. for sure. Yeah. Like, why even do Unix time? I'm just. It's an option that's in there. Just because you I'm can not saying, until yeah. 2038, so you should do it while you can. Yeah. Before we have to change it. That'll be a, a fork, <laughs> right? Changing how many bytes it is. Yeah, we have to figure something out. Um, but all of this stuff the is like hard fork. <laughs> none of this stuff is deal breakers for Miniscript. I mean, it's early days. Yeah. Right. I mean, I thought the multi-sig example was pretty pretty good. I mean, the last three years of multi-sig UX is fucking insane. Right. How much is go how far back. it's gone? Uh, how about this controversial idea here? The least amount of integration you have on Miniscript, the least amount of install base you have on Miniscript is the thing that's actually going to be good for you trying to develop the best Miniscript practices. Interoperability, yeah. Because so if people start adopting... Episode? What? Should we cancel the episode so no one hears about it? <laughs> uh, no, because seriously, like if too many people start integrating Miniscript, you're going to be stuck in however people did it. Mm-hmm. Right. And then like you're not going to have a lot of room to start this very complex stuff out in terms of just like best practices. Like some asshole is going to do like a 20 year time lock or whatever. And then you have to support that forever. Yeah. Got it. I mean, I don't know. Like you don't have to support it because it's not like consensus or anything. Right. Yep. You you like they just have to keep the code like right. whatever version they can but, use but their old wallet. That's yeah. how people lost money with way with P2SH way back then. They would create their own non-standard multi-sig scripts. They like only like the programmer dude knew it, and like the wife would never figure it out how there was no copy of the script. And so that's well, so that's <laughs> a lot no, of that no stuff. one keeps their redeem scripts exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's like well, a huge problem. Well, so you have to like that's just if the moment you leave single sig, you have to keep a copy of the redeem script, right? Whether it's legacy multi-sig or mini script stuff, I think. What's cool about Miniscript in the compiler that uses it, all of the logic of constructing the witness and those different pieces, that code's just sitting there and you can use it later. So as long as you have the necessary information, the signatures and the hash locks, whatever you're using, like, and you have the core script, there's working code out there that can assemble the rest of those pieces for you. And kind of, I think, over you know the coming year is just building out the foundational tooling to make this more interfaceable. Because multi-sig was a nightmare for years, and now it's like very easy to do, relatively speaking. Well, well, the improvements are insane. Yeah, like multi-sig, right? Single-sig maxi with XOR. No, I, I have <laughs> I have multi-sig too. Like I just I just feel like you you don't recommend it to noobs. No, like and even people who are just like unless you're full time in this business, like I I often don't recommend unless you're using your like assisted multi-sig. Mm. Um, but then you also have like the opposite side where it's like. Cold card has so many different features you can use that you start going down that rabbit hole. You're like, okay, you can use multi-sig. You can even do CDIX or on top of multi-sig. Yeah. You can do all this different stuff. And then someone hits you back with, oh, cold card's too complicated to use. So then you go, okay, just use it in single sig with with a passphrase and just maybe even do CDIX or and they're like, but why don't you use multi-sig then? And you just get this circle thing. Yeah. Oh man, it's so brutal. <laughs> like there, there is absolutely no winning in this in this conversation. They're like, I'm gonna use a ledger because it's too hard for me to add dice rolls to my cold cards. Like, okay, so then don't add dice rolls to your cold card. They're like, but then you have to trust the cold card's entropy. It's like, okay, then add dice rolls to the fucking cold card. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is frustrating, right? It is very frustrating the the self-custody conversation on on 
on Twitter, especially. It's more of an art yeah. than a science. Yeah. <laughs> American Hoddle just texted me saying he's the asshole who wants to do a 615 year time lock. There you go. There you go. Nice. A relative one that every time he sends it restarts. Maybe. Keep, yeah, keep just... all the keys, the descriptors, everything hodl. <laughs> yeah. He's going... you're gonna probably want to punch that in, in a gold plate. A gold plate. Because <laughs> if it has to last that long, uh, you know, that's what they do with the, the vinyl discs uh, on uh, probes that we send to space, you know? Like the gold. Uh, yeah. Why not steel? Because uh, you know, even stainless steel, like given enough time in bad circumstances, we'll it will go. Yeah. And I'm talking about like you know, hundred years, hundreds of years. <laughs> Some sort of gold no, alloy, no. right? Because gold's really like yeah, malleable and stuff. Yeah, I should make a gold-plated uh, uh, gold seed, uh, seed plates. Seed plates. Gold. Yeah. <laughs> gold-plated gold card. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, so you can feel like a proper gangster. Yeah, they're gonna steal your seed plate and just keep it, <laughs> and not actually gold. sweep it for the gold. <laughs> <laughs> They'll try to melt it down and sell it to someone. <laughs> That would be ironic. Can you imagine? Like there is a, a a gold seed plate out there. It's like maybe there is like you know ten million dollars on it, right? The guy gets it and he just melts it down. Yeah, <laughs> for like twenty k or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the spot price. Beautiful. Yeah. Um. So where do we want to go from here, boys? Uh, at, at the high level, I think we did a good job, kind of talking through the design space, the opportunity, why Bitcoin script is a nightmare to work with directly. Yep what Miniscript fixes around that um, transaction malleability we hit on. Uh, do you want to talk about, you had some call to action stuff and like, I guess also shout out to like Alicos and the original magical Bitcoin wallet that rolled into BDK for a lot of this functionality of the Rust compiler to yep. make it very accessible for other devs to start playing with this stuff. Yep. Yeah. There, there's another great video, uh, I think from LA Bitcoin devs or something like that, like eCurrency Hodler invited uh, Alcos to explain stuff. So you could check out that YouTube video from back in the day, I think 2020. Um, yeah, the main call to action is we want to probably see Miniscript adopted uh, by more hardware wallet providers. Um, and, you know, uh, cold cards a competitor and they're not going to do it. So hopefully you will. <laughs> I think that's, that's just make a PR. <laughs> yeah, make a PR. Um, no, I mean, listen, if it if it wasn't so scary in terms of like bugs that could happen and like people lose money, I, I'd put a bounty out and sort of like see if people want to sort of like at least start to work on it. But this kind of stuff is very sketchy in terms of like just accepting contributions. Like you have to really, really sort of like build it right, build it the way we want it to be built and sort of test it the way we want to be testing. It's... it's uh, I think the biggest piece is going to be doing some sort of um, mini script compiler uh, in MicroPython. That would be the biggest thing because you have to take that output descriptor and map it into the raw script that you're actually like constructing transactions for. So that would be probably the biggest piece. MicroPython. MicroPython. Yeah, that's the biggest thing to tackle. It's, it's doable, but it's just, like that's why it takes time. And it's not something you just turn on the mini script switch. Man, call, it's a very involved code update. Steve Myers here. We need like uh, BDK bindings to MicroPython now. Steve, if you're listening, come to the studio. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got you need one of those like uh, supermarket dings that you just announce and or like, like the it, it speaks Ooh. out loud yeah. in the rest of the Steve the, Myers the, to the studio. That's Steve right. Myers <laughs> to the studio. That's right. Exactly. The whole PA system. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I think I think that's pretty much it. Like we did a great job just explaining what all the foot guns of script were and why Miniscript is 
more accessible to the normies because you can just intuitively think of whatever spending conditions you want to make and then get that into the script using the Miniscript compiler. Uh, but yeah, it is very fluid. You got Rob here, who's the app dev, who's trying to do cool shit with it. You got MVK in the middle with the hardware wallet, who like will like his Rob's clients might use for using it. And he's like, I don't know. And then separately, you have the protocol people at the top who are now need to adapt Miniscript for Taproot. So there's a lot of moving pieces here. And uh, honestly, we all don't know where this will end up. But I hope we see more people play with it this year. Yeah, I'm very bullish on getting more people interested and engaged with this. And that was for me like two months ago when we started this conversation. I've been around Bitcoin for a while. I hadn't even really touched or like even really heard of it in any real capacity. And if that's the case for me, that's probably the case for a lot of other people. And it's more of a call to action of playing with this stuff, starting to think about the tooling and user experience aspects of how do we avoid these foot guns? How do we make the a stronger consensus where you can... Um, have different hardware wallets and you can have different software wallets all talk to each other and like cross validate and verify things and making it in a way that users have knowledge and consent for depositing, withdrawing money out of this stuff. So they, you know, have control over their money. I think we should end the pod on Rob's contrarian take about layer one. <laughs> oh, you're just, you want to end with a little, uh, yeah, a little, little, little drama. Little spice, sure. yeah. yeah. So like <laughs> this is, I was talking about this with Vic, uh, my personal theory is that there is an under appreciation under uh, under capital allocated for layer one Bitcoin use cases as opposed to layer two and beyond in that basically layer one Bitcoin and like the store of value and the like the vault technology of what we're using Bitcoin for uh is kind of what confers a lot of like the safety and like a lot of the use cases on the higher layers. Like lightning works because layer one Bitcoin you can't mess with and you can always revoke back to it. And I just believe that as you extend the usability and programmability of layer one, so it has more utility for more use cases, it's going to strengthen layer two and layer three and beyond. So that's just kind of, uh, you know, that was a conversation we were having. I'm not sure if there was any specific point. Like a thread too, but... I, it was like a, a two, three tweet Twitter thread. Yeah, but, yeah. I have a take on that. What's I think that? that maybe maybe Bitcoin is already good enough. Maybe it resolves the problem for what we need for the next 10 years. And uh, because we haven't complicated layer one yet too much, you know, because Taproot is not used, Moose mm -hmm. is not used, and other stuff. Uh, maybe we just don't need more stuff. Like, it's just like, hey, this thing is great. Uh, we can use it for the next 10 years for the needs we're going to have for the next 10 years. So, like, you're just not going to see... And it's a terrible place to make money, too, in, in the layer one, right? Because it's the place where there really isn't a man in the middle, right? Like, there really isn't a, a middle man uh, sort of business model there uh, because it just works. You send your transactions and they get put into a block. And Yeah, I mean, that's part of what we're working on as an insurance solution for Bitcoin is that we are part of that in-between of kind of... Um, holding the risk for you so you can hold your you know you can hold keys not risk right we're that, we're that middleman you pay an insurance premium that's what we're working on and to be clear i'm not making a point about there needs to be forks or like soft forks or no, I'm about funding like it's oh just, for funding for stuff yeah exactly it's just that like it's just great as it is and there is enough solutions out there for the size of market we have um yeah yeah for me personally i just uh i think the insurance space is very underdeveloped the custodians that have offerings today have like fractional reserve insurance. Oh, like it's like you have 
a couple hundred million dollars in insurance and you hold 10 you know plus billion like that's if, if you had a wipeout event you're getting paid three cents back on the dollar that's not insurance it doesn't cover the legal fees right exactly right <laughs> and yeah right it's, it's a so that, that's kind of the stuff i'm you know designing solutions around i think the mini script is a perfect example because no fork no fork required exactly. we're, we're using the stuff that's in the oven right now and we can improve that user experience so maybe in 10 years we can talk about what other changes we want on layer one but we should be using the design space of what's accessible today yeah. before we even talk about those other conversations. Yeah. Great. Yeah. It's going to be hard, man, to do insurance on, uh, on, on Bitcoin units versus dollar units. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to turn the end of the podcast into my business and stuff. Do but, it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a great business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so at a very Disclaimer, high level, I'm an investor. Disclosure, NVK is an investor. Uh so you do a good job shilling it. <laughs> uh, so very quickly, Anchor Watch uh, is the name of the company. It's an old nautical term referring to the crew of sailors who watch the ship at night when you're at anchor. And uh, out of the gate, we're focusing on U.S. dollar denomination uh, for insurance policies, just because that's where there's a lot more deeper liquidity and access to capital. I have aspirations and I'm exploring ways right now on how to do things Bitcoin denominated out of the gate. Uh, nothing uh, to announce or kind of talk about in detail today. But the idea, though, is that uh, we are skin in the game aligned, holding your risk. Uh, so we're able to offer better insurance premiums based on what kind of security scheme you have. And, uh, you know, those go into a bunch of different branches of conversations and about how insurance works. But uh, very quickly at a high level, I think that insurance uh, is a very strong unlock for institutional capital, additional money to coming into this uh, industry, seeing all of the shenanigans that went on this past cycle. Uh, very obviously, insurance underwriters would never touch this stuff with a thousand foot pole. And it kind of talks about how much insurance is pricing risk. And you actually can have a market pricing of risk because people put money behind their assessment of the risk. And that's a very healthy function for de-risking markets. And I think it's a large thing for institutional capital to start unlocking this. Would you take Luke Dasher as a client? Not with his setup, no. <laughs> but like, But see, like when you think about it, think about his setup, and provided that that's what we know, uh, and all the, the key was backed up to a server encrypted. Yeah, that's one of the I, I, I'm just speculating. Right? Of course. Well, the one thing we do know for a fact, he was using legacy addresses, single sig. So like single sig, single point of failure would have more risk than some sort of distribution of keys, distribution of counterparties. Right. And this is why you like Miniscript is because you you ideally your ideal client is using multi institutional, right? Multi custodial sig multiple points of failure and that brings more affordable premiums because you're distributing risk in different pockets and you don't have to worry about a single key man at a custodian somewhere running off with all the money so internal and external collusion can be mitigated with this stuff or right. losing a backup like i think someone did like fireblocks i think oh that happened i, I forgot who so, so there was like some controversy because someone lost their keys and they're relying on a backup and there was backup eth fireblocks and eth I yeah think, yeah right? <laughs> well not your backups not your coins well that's the other thing too is that um <laughs> Uh, crypto custodians use MPCs because uh, multi-party computing with uh, HSMs like hardware signing modules because they can take one single private key and it could be an ETH key, uh, a Polygon key, uh, you know, a Bitcoin key, a Litecoin key. It could be whatever you want. And it all uses the same architecture. Whereas Miniscript's interesting because this is something that's afforded to Bitcoin uniquely because of the UTXO model and Bitcoin script as a language. Right. I, I thought they were using MPCs because ETH just doesn't have native multi-sig. Well, that too. Right, but it makes it a one-size-fits-all architecture. Right, it's a conversation that we've had many times on the show, right? Which is like, if a company is trying to support all these different shit coins, they're not able to take advantage of Bitcoin native features. It's a very hard problem, like yeah. trying to uh, keep shit coins secure. Mm -hmm. I mean, remember Cripsy? 
you yep. know, like Big Vern. One, yeah, that's before he Min pal. Yeah, before he took everybody's money <laughs> um and ran. Uh there was actually an actual hack. Mm-hmm. Uh was it what was the coin again? It was some complete garbage coin, right? Yeah, but it was like uh I forgot the name of the coin, but anyways, that coin's client had a back door on it or something and yeah. then they hack into the server through that and they they drained it uh one of their one of their uh they drained the other coins too yeah. yeah yeah it's before my time but that's not like barbecue coin or whatever right no barbecue coin was solid. lucky seven coin <laughs> barbecue coin was the true one was it lucky seven coin lucky no we have crypt loco in the chat saying that i can't remember man like, uh crypt loco also has another question about privacy risk when using something like anchor watch obviously if you're if you're getting your your coin insured like you're oh yeah you're trusting them with your privacy that's the trade-off one yeah. of the main trade-offs yeah so if you're talking about our relationship with customers uh we understand exactly which utxos we're insuring right so right. you can't just be like oh i have 10 bitcoin take my word for it yeah right so we we are a counterparty and it's a legal contract right so it's a legal contract which requires if you want us to hold the risk we need to understand your keys and what you're using so yeah that's a necessary trade and that's what's cool about miniscript or at least miniscript in the future is that presumably if you don't want to trust your privacy with an insurance company you can architect your setup in a way that you are relatively protected in a sovereign way with with key decay or time locks or exactly whatever. right and that's part of the tooling i'm building right now is to make it so that an individual doesn't have to use my company services but they can just start playing with this stuff right and making it accessible so individuals can also have access to this control of like their money awesome gents um this has been a great conversation would you agree with me that for someone to play around with miniscript right now a freak the easiest way would be using leanne uh, yes. The software wallet. Yeah. So the Liana. Liana, Liana software wallet is if you want to download a program and use it. I also have been recommending to people. Um, Steve at BDK does a really great command line tutorial of how to use BDK in the command line. And it's not a pretty GUI, but it does mini script and he goes through the whole process. Where do you find that? Uh, I can. So for Liana, you can go to wizardsardine.com and click Liana. Is yeah. it supposed to be Wizard Sardine? Wizard Sardine is like, yeah, yeah. Their, their project name. But but uh, there's BDK Playground. Also. The BDK Playground's cool, but you don't actually do the signing and like the moving. But if, that's a good elephant, point. Right? It, it, yeah, Elephant. Yeah, so the, uh, if you just type in um, BDK Elephant, that's the name of their like demo wallet that you actually can create a mini script policy, deposit testnet coins into, and spend and broadcast to the network. So Elephant is the full end-to-end customized experience. And then Liana is like the program that they're using right now. If you want to download like an actual executable, like on your Great. computer. Yeah. Okay, gents, this was a fantastic conversation. Before we wrap up, let's end with some final thoughts. Final thoughts, NVK. Um, use a harder wallet and don't lose your money. Cheers. Thanks, NVK. Final thoughts, Vivek. Uh, when mini script on cold card, NVK. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Vivek. Final thoughts, Rob. Uh, final thoughts are, if you have any questions, you want to talk about this stuff, you can hit me up on Twitter at Rob1Ham. Uh, our company's website is anchorwatch.com. Uh, if you want to talk about Miniscript, uh, anything that I'm building or working on, um, open book. Uh, I'm kind of obsessed about this stuff, if you couldn't tell. So always <laughs> happy to have someone else I can talk their ear off to. And uh, yeah, look bullish on the future for uh, multi-institutional insurance solutions. Thanks, Rob. Um, we'll definitely do we'll do a follow up conversation on Miniscript and Anchor Watch in the future. Maybe next time you're in Nashville. Sure. Um, that'll be fun. 
Uh, huge shout out to our wonderful guests for joining us. Huge shout out for all the freaks who continue to support the show and contribute Bitcoin to it and join us in the live chat. I appreciate you all. Um, we have a big week at Bitcoin Park. Uh, you can follow what's going on at Bitcoin Park at bitcoinpark.co. Also, a lot of the content that will be recorded, a lot of the content and discussions that are happening at the park will be recorded and posted to the Bitcoin Park podcast feed. You can just search Bitcoin Park in your favorite podcast app and click that subscribe button. Anyway, freaks, I love you all. Thank you for the support. Thank you for joining us again. Hope to see many of you in Nashville at Bitcoin Park at our events. Stay humble, stack sets. Cheers.